Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Judges chapter number 13 tonight as we'll approach the life of Jephthah once again this evening, tonight, and by God's grace next week as well before we get to uh, the next judge who I believe you will be quite familiar with. Judges chapter number 13. Consider these words tonight. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, but who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Those are powerful words written over 100 years ago, actually spoken in 1911 by none other than the former president at that time, Theodore Roosevelt. And if there ever was a president who was, uh, well, <laughs> a go-getter, it would be none other than Teddy Roosevelt, who lived uh, a life full of activity of several lifetimes, stuffed into the very short lifetime uh, that he lived. And that short part of the major speech that he gave in Paris in 1911 over time became known as the man in the arena speech. And really, for what I'm looking at for us here tonight, we could really sum up this man in the arena speech, the words that I just read to you, with just the very first seven words, which is this. It is not the critic who counts. It is not the critic who counts. Critics are loud. Critics are attention seekers. Critics are fault finders. And worst of all, Critics always are right in their own minds. And so tonight, as we approach Judges chapter number 13, we're going to take maybe a little bit of a deviation from maybe where you would believe or assume we would go and talk a little bit about what I have called the characteristics of a chronic complainer. The characteristics of a chronic complainer. And hopefully, uh, it doesn't hit too close to home. I know this. Uh, it may have in the study just a little bit over the last couple of days, uh, but I think there's some things in our text this morning, this evening, uh, that would be a help to us, all right? Uh, look, don't complain. All right, let's all stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word, Judges chapter 13. I'm sorry, I keep saying Judges 13. I'm sorry, it's Judges 12. My apologies, so you might need to go back. Judges chapter 12, verse number one. And the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah. Remember, Jephthah has just won a major battle. In fact, a military campaign consisting of over 20 battles where they have pushed uh, the Ammonites out of the region who had oppressed them once again. And you'll remember that the last time we approached Jephthah, he had made that foolish vow uh, where he said he was going to sacrifice the very first thing that came out of his house, which happened to be his daughter. So after all of this, we now get to our text where it says, and said unto Jephthah, wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and didst not call us to go with thee? We will burn thine house upon thee with fire. Well, 
Isn't that a great way to negotiate? And Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I called you, ye delivered me not out of their hands. And when I saw that ye delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into mine hand. Wherefore then are ye come up unto me this day to fight against me? And so right here at the beginning of our text in chapter 12, we see a conflict between Jephthah and his military uh, army, the people of Gilead, against the people of Ephraim, the men of Ephraim, who are complaining because they got their feelings a little bit hurt because there were battles to be had. And they said, Jephthah, you didn't call us. You didn't even want us to be part of the army. And so how do they take care of their hurt feelings? They say, if you don't see it our way, here's what we're going to do. We're going to burn our house down with fire. Well, you can see there seems to be a little bit of criticism at play here, to put it mildly. But I want us to look at the characteristics of the chronic complainer tonight and maybe help us a little bit to notice some blind spots we all may have about the issue, the sin of complaining and murmuring against God. Heavenly Father, just be with us this night as we go through your word. Help me to articulate what is already in my heart. Help me to say that which is right, nothing else from your word. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Understand this tonight. There is a difference between using the God-given judgment and discernment he has given us and being a critic. God has given us judgment and discernment. That's a blessing. But there is a difference between using that God-given judgment and discernment and having a critical spirit. Uh, we are to be discerning in our daily walk. Jesus in John 7, 24 said, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So he said, when judgment is to be done, which by the way, we make judgment calls every single day. We make judgments every single hour. But when we judge uh, what we do or what someone has done to us, we are to judge, as the Bible says, righteously. There's a difference between finding fault and being a fault finder. Let me say that again tonight. There's difference between finding fault and being a fault finder. Let me give you an example. Paul was one who did not mince his words. Paul talked to the people of Galatia. He called them foolish for the fact that they had followed into false doctrine. He said that they had been bewitched. Uh, certainly, both of those are very hard words. He agreed with the people of Crete when they assessed of themselves in the book of Titus that they were liars and evil beasts and slow bellies. Well, that doesn't sound very polite, does it? Well, he found fault. He found fault righteously. But Paul was not one who was just finding fault for fault's sake. How can you read any of the epistles and realize that when Paul was finding fault, he did so to diagnose a problem. So then he could offer the solution, which always was and always has been Jesus Christ. So he was not a fault finder in the sense that he was just always trying to find the worst in everybody. No, he was finding fault. And as he did so, he was doing so for one sole purpose, to try to reconcile people back together with God. There's a difference between finding fault and being a fault finder. See, the critic has answers when nobody asks him for one. The critic wants everyone else to do while they do little to nothing. 
The critic has a spirit of fault-finding that only looks for problems and never looks for solutions. The critic tears down but never builds up. And this is what I want us to see from our text tonight. These three short verses and some of the verses that follow this evening to look at some of the characteristics, to look at some of the patterns very quickly tonight from God's word of the chronic complainer, the constant critic, the characteristics of the chronic complainer. Look at this, first of all, number one, if you're writing these down, and I hope you will because I have several of these and I'll try to go through them quickly. Number one, uh, they ignore all the facts. They ignore all the facts. Those who are constant critics, uh, those who are chronic complainers, do not usually take in all the facts of a situation. Did you notice in verse number one, it says, The men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and didst not call us to go with thee? Now stop right there. What are they alleging against Jephthah? They are saying there was a battle against the Ammonites that was to be had. We were willing to fight. We wanted to go. But Jephthah, for whatever reason, you chose not to call us to come to the fight, whether you did it purposely or whether you did it accidentally. Uh, for whatever reason, you ignored us. There we were sitting at our doors, swords ready, shields ready, ready to go out the battle, ready to defend the honor of Jehovah and of our great nation. But yet you refused to call us. This is the facts that they present to Jephthah. But I don't know if you realize this, but in verse number two, Jephthah counters that by saying this, you're not really presenting all the facts here. You are presenting this in a way, you're presenting it in a light that makes you look good, but yet does not resemble the reality of the situation. Look at verse number two. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I, what? Are the next two words? When I called you. Well, well, hold on a second. He said, and when I called you. Now, he didn't ring him up on the phone. He, he didn't send him a text. Didn't even send him a carrier pigeon. What did he do? Uh, he called unto them. He obviously sent a messenger to them to ask them to join the fight. And when I called you, ye delivered me not out of their hands. And he goes on the next verse to say, no, we, we hazarded our own lives while you sat at home. We put our own necks on the line while you were at home complaining. And so the first characteristic that I see of the constant complainer is that they ignore all the facts. They were called. They conveniently left this part out of their conversation with Jephthah. Why didn't you call us? Well, <laughs> gentlemen, I hate to tell you, but I did call you and you refused to come. But you know, this is a thing, this is a characteristic that I constantly see in complainers. And again, understanding this, that this tendency is within all of us. Could we just stop here tonight and before we start to think, well, I'm glad you're preaching this message to so-and-so that's sitting across the church. Could I just say this lovingly this evening to you? I'm preaching this to you this evening. I'm preaching it to you. Now, the good news is if there was a mirror right here, I could say to me, I'm preaching this to you and look right back at me. Because there is an element of this in all of us. You say, well, pastor, I've just gotten so far in my Christian life. I've progressed to such a degree that I just don't feel like I complain anymore. Well, now you're dealing with lying too. And so that's not a good thing, all right? Listen, if the people of Israel who saw God's hand over and over and over miraculously saved them and the first words on their lips was this, murmur, then we have to acknowledge that the propensity for us 
to be able to complain and murmur in light of what God has done is right there. So before we start looking at other people tonight, let's make sure that we're looking at our own heart uh, and our own life. But, you know, this is what complainers do. They ignore all the facts. They say things like this. Nobody calls me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody helps me. The, the Bible calls it this Eeyore syndrome. Never mind. It's called Eeyore syndrome. Nobody cares. Nobody knows the trouble I've been through. I mean, that's the way people feel. But we have to stop and say, nobody? Nobody cares. Nobody calls. By the way, I've had people tell me before, Pastor, nobody calls me. And I think, you know, you must have one of those phones that only works one way. I'm sorry, I, I got to be careful about this. Brother Dan, help me. If I get too sarcastic, just blink twice, all right? He just blinked eight times. All right, that means I'm going too far. All right, I'll dial it back a little bit. I'll dial it back a little bit. But no, understand, but we can get into that point, can't we? When we get to that spirit where we feel like these are the facts, but they're actually not the facts at hand. And so when we get to situations where we're tempted to complain about others, or complain about situations, we need to look at all the facts, not just the ones that have made us upset. For instance, if you're dealing with someone and before you complain about them and the way they have treated you or what they've done, here's a few questions you can ask that can help you to understand all the facts. First of all, are they saved? That might be a fact that you want to put into your knowledge about this situation before you start. Sometimes we complain about people who are unsaved acting like people who are unsaved. Maybe we should consider the fact that they're unsafe. Now, I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying, would it help us understand the situation a little bit better instead of ignoring them? What if it's a Christian that's not mature or a Christian uh, who maybe is not doing what God has called them to do? Uh, are they living for Christ the way that they should? Or on the other end, maybe I am looking at the situation through the lens of hurt pride. Or I'm looking through the situation through ego or maybe even through jealousy. And so because of that, I'm looking at a situation, not at the facts. I'm looking at something more like a funhouse mirror that it looks like reality, but it's stretched out far beyond what it really is or it's stretched wider uh, than it really is. And so what we have to do is go to the God of all truth and say this, Lord, help me understand the truth of this situation before I make any decision that I might regret later on. So the first thing they did was they distorted reality. They ignored all the facts. Number two, they ignored blessings. They ignored blessings. Uh, go back to chapter 11 and look at verse number 32 with me. Chapter 11, verse number 32. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from Aurora, even till thou come to Mineth, even 20 cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards, and a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Can we just stop for a moment and say, what a blessing has taken place here that the Israelites who were under the oppression of the Ammonites have not just won a victory by the hand of God, but they have won an entire military campaign. They have pushed the Ammonites out of their land. They have won a battle over uh, or won battle after battle for 20 different cities. And Jephthah has taken this very desperate situation, and by the hand of God, a great victory has taken place. But what have the men of Ephraim done? Did they say, Jephthah, thank you 
for the wonderful blessing of giving us freedom. Jephthah, thank you for all you have done. Jephthah, we praise God for how he used you in this situation, even if there was some hurt feelings, even if there was some difficulties. But what do they do right at the outset? They don't even mention the fact that by the hand of Jephthah, they're free. Now, we understand it was by the hand of God. Understand, Jephthah couldn't do that on his own. It was because of God. But they ignored the blessings of the fact that they are now free because of Jephthah being willing to be a vessel used by God. But, you know, the constant complainer will oftentimes ignore the blessings that they've had around them. They only look at the ways that people have hurt them. They only look at the ways that people uh, have crossed them. They only look at the way situation uh, may have disadvantaged them. And they never actually look at the blessings uh, of the, the uh, situations that they have been in. And again, I'm not talking tonight about looking through situations with rose-colored glasses, and I'm not talking about just sticking our heads in the sand. But what I am saying is this, that we should understand in the situations of life that we're in that God can bless even in difficult situations, and we should make sure we keep our mind on those blessings. Some of you have come from situations of churches that were not good. You've been in a church in the past where maybe things were not what they should have been for whatever reason. It could get you to the point where you could become so bitter or angry about church that there are some who just stop going to church completely. Or even if they do, they say, you know, I'll come, but I'm never getting involved again. <laughs> the last time I got involved, you know what happened? You know what I found in my life? There are times when church situations were not what I wanted them to be. But even in some of those situations, there were blessings I was able to take out of it. You know, there are pastors that I don't see eye to eye with. There's some in my past that I don't even see eye to eye with today. But the Lord's had to help me in those situations to say, you know what, I don't know that I agree with where this pastor's gone, not even necessarily doctrinally, but just philosophically. But you know, this man has had an impact in my life and it would do me well just in my own spirit to recognize the impact he has had in my life. And so that I can keep the right perspective. Again, not ignoring that he's gone wrong doctrinally or not ignoring the fact that philosophically he's made some very poor decisions. But at the same time, could I also say, I'm thankful for the investment this person's made in my life and I wouldn't be who I am today without their investment. See, that's the different outlook of the person who is trying to be led by the spirit uh, than someone who's just the constant complainer. And I'll be honest with you, somebody who is a constant complainer can't find anything good about anybody anytime. They'll never find a church that's good enough. They'll never find friends who are good enough. Nobody will ever understand them. Nobody will ever listen to them. Uh, nobody uh, will ever do. And friend, you realize what an awful way that is to live. Maybe some of you have been there before. And by God's grace, you've been able to get pulled out of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that is not a good place to live. Don't ignore the blessings, even in the difficult situations. Number three, uh, when you look at the constant complainer, the chronic complainer, number three, they want their things their way, whatever the cost. They want their things their way, whatever the cost. You ever heard the term scorched earth? That's literally what they were threatening in verse number one. Jephthah, we want you to see it our way. But we could also do this the easy way or the hard way. And so we would like you to make a formal apology. We would like you to include us in all of your future plans. We would like to play nice with you. But if not... We'll burn your house down. Well, that doesn't exactly sound like someone who is spirit-led, does it? My way or the highway? 
the constant complainer, the chronic complainer is good at saying, you better blank or I'll blank. You better or I'll. I've heard people say, if my friend doesn't blank, then I'll never talk to him again. If my parents don't blank, then we're done. If my spouse doesn't blank, then I'm leaving. If the pastor doesn't blank, I'll leave the church. You say, does pastor, does that ever happen before? What time is it? No, I'm just kidding. There are men in here who have been in meetings with me in the past where people have said, pastor, if you don't change X, Y, and Z, I'm leaving. Or pastor, if you don't change X, Y, and Z, I'm withholding my tithe. Now, I praise the Lord. I don't know what anyone here ties. Well, I know what one family ties, and I happen to know because I signed the check. Uh, but other than that, I don't know uh, what any other family ties, and I'm thankful for that. But let me ask you this. As a pastor, would you want me to make decisions as a leader based on what someone gives or doesn't or on if someone is going to come or go? Now, listen, I agonize over those things. I'm not making light of those things tonight at all. But I'm saying this, when there are disagreements in a church, and there are disagreements in a church, we come to each other humbly. But the constant complainer says, you do it my way or I'm out. I've heard people never hear by the grace of God, but I've heard people say, if you don't do this, I'm going to start going around to other families and you're going to find out there's a lot of people who agree with me. And take the church, which by the way, I have no deed or ownership to this church, but to take the church of Jesus Christ, even if you don't agree, and to take it like that, that's not the way God would have it to be. The constant complainer was will, would willingly tear down a family to be right. The constant complainer would willingly tear down a relationship just to be right. The constant complainer would gloat over doing whatever they had to do to be right. But I see right here, they said, you do it our way or we're burning this whole thing down. And that's not God's plan. See, they ignore the facts, they ignore blessings, they want things their way, whatever the cost, they're better, uh, uh, verse number, or number four rather tonight, they're better at talking than working. The constant complainer loves to talk. Work? Yeah, that's a little bit harder. The complainer is a cousin to the slothful. They're typically great at talking, but not actually fixing the things that they think are not right in the first place. It's interesting. He says, I wanted you to come, and you didn't come. Not only that, we haven't gotten this far yet. Go down to verse number four. Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim because they said, ye Gileadites are fugitive of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. So stop right there. Not only did they not want to fight the first time when they were bidden to the fight, when they actually had to fight, they weren't actually very good at it. <laughs> they lost. Big talkers, not big producers. What do you hear sometimes said in the sports arena? They can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. Complainers always have great ideas for you to do. Complainers will always be glad to find what you need to fix. Now, they don't have anything to fix in their own life. Nothing in their realm needs to be touched. Or if you have an idea for them of something that needs to be fixed, they'll dismiss it out of hand as, as something that just isn't a problem or something that just doesn't need to be fixed at all or a solution that just really couldn't work. 
But the complainer is cousin to the slothful. That's why Proverbs 26, 13 says, the slothful man says, there is a lion in the way, a lion is in the streets. Now on the face, that might sound a little bit random, but the idea is that the slothful man will make any excuse that he has to not to work. Sometimes you can invite the complainer. Well, maybe I, I see something about what you're saying. Could you help me fix it? Oh, they don't want to help. They just want to tell you what you need to do. And that is a problem for sure. The chronic complainer wants to point out faults, but they're not good at fixing the problem. In fact, they can't be found when it's time to fix the problem. This morning I said that any fool can be thankful when things are going well, but it takes something different to give the sacrifice of thanksgiving when things are difficult. Tonight, I'll put it this way. Any fool can tear something down, but it takes a wise man to build up properly. You know, I'm not great at building things, but I can tell you this. I am world-class at demo. You want something knocked down? Give me a call. I'll be glad to help. You want it built back up again? I'm nowhere to be found. You know why? Because you want someone that can build it up right. You want someone that can build it up right. The complainer is great at demo, but because they're not spirit-led, they don't know how to rebuild in a way that God would be pleased with. And that's why being a complainer, one of the many reasons it's so disastrous because it tears down and does not allow to build up in a way that is godly. Do you ever find yourself with the tendency to tear people down but never trying to build them up? That's a problem. We can do that as believers. Sometimes we feel like by tearing someone else down, we can prop ourselves up. But if anything else, by tearing other people down, it actually proves how small we are. And we have to be so careful about that. And the tendency is within all of us. Think of this, Jude 20, verse, uh, Jude verse 20 through 23. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. You know, verse number 20 says this, build yourself up in the faith. And then the following verses say this, build up others in the faith. Whether it's through compassion, says some saving with the fire, uh, meaning this, that uh, literally some people need to be dangled over the pits of hell in some ways to realize what the, what the cost is. But even then, when you do so, you don't do it for the sake of trying to burn them down. You don't do it for the sake of trying to tear them down. You do, them to, you do this to try to build them up within the most holy faith of what you should be building yourself up in every single day. The complainers are better at talking than they are at working. Number five, when the going gets tough, they run. When the going gets tough, they run. You know, the Ephraimites didn't just lose against Jephthah. They lost badly. Now, we'll see how badly they lost next week because they got stuck by the riverside and there was a specific word that they had trouble saying and it was not pak the kad havad yad. But we'll look more at that shibboleth next week. But look at what it says in uh, verse number four once again. And Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim because they said, ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. And the Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when the Ephraimites, which were escaped, which were what? Escaped, said, and we're going to stop there because I don't want to get too far into next week's message. The ones who had escaped. So many of them lost the battle. And what did they do? They cut and run. 
they cut and run. Now, Jephthah found a way to round them up and find out who was who. And again, I'm looking forward to getting into that next week. But when the going gets tough, the constant complainer, the chronic critic, they will often complain. They're never happy with their friends. They're never happy with their church. They're never happy with anyone else. They eventually will burn their bridges just to find greener pastures. And what they find is there aren't greener pastures somewhere else. There's just more pastures with more people who they have to deal with. And I've talked to people who say, it doesn't matter where I go. I just, I, I can't find a church. Well, there are some churches that are out there that are preaching the truth, that love people. There are out there. I know, I know there's certainly not as many as there used to be. There's no doubt about that. Well, I can't trust anybody anymore. You can't have any friends. Well, I mean, there's some people who are still out there that could be trustworthy. But what I found is so many people, they've been hurt so many times, they complain just because they've been hurt so many times and they run from any kind of commitment. They run from any kind of situation. They don't want to open themselves to anyone else. And the reason why is because they've been hurt before. And the only way to make sure they don't get hurt again is to make sure they never open themselves up. And so what they do is they run, they run, they run, they run. And you'll never outrun your past. You'll never outrun the hurt in your life. But what you can do if you're a constant complainer is that you can take those situations, give them to God, and allow him to help you navigate those situations with the spirit. Sometimes that may be going to someone and talking to them with the right spirit. It may be going to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them in the right spirit. It could be disengaging when you want to engage. It could be laying low when you want to fight. But oftentimes the complainer, I shouldn't say oftentimes, the complainer is never going to go to God for the answer because they have all the answers. And then when they find out their man-made answers aren't working, they run so they can try it again somewhere else. And the same thing happens. And it's a cycle over and over and over so five things but there's actually six and the title of the message is the chronic complainer you say well pastor you really beat up these ephraimites really bad like you have taken them to the cleaners i mean you have built a straw man and you have beaten it senseless until there's nothing left i mean pastor everybody makes mistakes once in a while and here they are sure they might have done those things that you said but i mean do, do they really deserve to have a whole sermon uh, preached about them do they really deserve to be called constant complainers i mean do we really need to talk about them in this way when they may have just assessed the situation wrong pastor you wouldn't want to be held to the same standard that you are holding them to right now i mean because we all make mistakes and we all approach situations wrongly i mean shouldn't we have some compassion on them i mean which should we have some gra remember grace and mercy remember you talked about that this morning pastor how about some for these ephraimites well there's one problem this isn't the first time it's happened this isn't the first time it's happened in the book of judges so number six and finally for the chronic complainer complaining is a way of life go to judges chapter eight quickly let me refresh your memory Remember Gideon? Seemed like he had a great victory, didn't he? Anytime you can battle 300, several thousand with 300, I'd say you've done well. You remember we went back to the statistics and saw that by ratio, it was the greatest victory 
ever achieved on a military battlefield as far as ratio between the amount of the Midianites and the amount of the Israelites. It was the greatest military victory in history. I mean, who could possibly complain about 300 men taking on an entrenched military army with camels in a, in a position that was fortified? Who could possibly complain about that? Enter the Ephraimites. Chapter 8, verse 1. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou callest us not? It's the same thing. It's the same hymn from a different pew. We went to fight with the Midianites, and they did chide with him sharply. Now, you'll remember Gideon answers in a way that is a little bit different than Jephthah. I don't need to get into the details of that tonight and why I believe it's different from one to the other. But what I want to bring out from this is just this. This is not the first time it's happened. And for these people, it became a way of life. It was generational, if you will, that it had come to the point where they just complained about things because, well, people didn't just value them. I mean, people didn't understand what strong warriors they were. I mean, people didn't understand how much they had to offer the people of Israel. So instead of being thus, instead of it being that when Israel wins, everyone wins, it was unless I win, nobody wins. And if that's not a summary of the chronic complainer, I don't know what is. It's not when one wins, everyone wins. It's unless I win, nobody wins. Do you know when a church across town has a big day? You know we win? You know when a church plant, like our friends in Newtown, or like we pray for the Shives here in a short period of time, or like the Lafreniers who were at uh, the church down in Connecticut for a while and is now continuing on, do you know when they have a big day? Do you know if they happen to end up having more than we do on a Sunday? You know what? We win. Now, that's not me just trying to ride on their coattails. It's me saying, the kingdom of God wins. Why would we not rejoice over that? Could I tell you the most petty group of people I've ever met in my life? It's not women. Stereotypical. It's pastors. If someone has a big day, there's a reason why it wasn't a big day. If someone has big offerings, there's a reason why. Well, you know, they just have one really big giver in the church. If someone has something really important going on, well, you know, the only reason why is because the reason that's going on is because they've made some compromises in some other areas. One of the cattiest, nastiest, gossipiest group of people I've ever met, group of men, are pastors. You know why? Because if we're not careful, we want to pound the rest of them down to build ourselves up. But you see, when one of those men when one of those families wins, we win. Because who am I serving? Myself? Or are we all serving the same God? But if I try to win alone, and if I can't win, then everyone loses? I've heard pastors say, well, there's not even any good churches around anymore. I've heard them say that at preachers' meetings with other pastors around. But I will say this. The spirit of complaining Again, not discernment. Is it important to have discernment? Yes. 
Is it important to have good godly judgment? Yes. Is it important to find fault at times? It can be, as long as you're not being a fault finder. I'm not discounting any of those things tonight. I want to be very clear about that. But the purpose of just looking at these things through the lens of me, myself, and I, and to not look at others, to try to tear down without trying to build up, to do it with the wrong spirit, is something that is so insidious, sometimes we do it and we don't even realize it. And a spirit that can get into us before we even realize. Say, Pastor, do you have someone in mind tonight? Is there a reason you're preaching this? Is there someone you're thinking of? And my answer would be, absolutely. If nothing else, it's me. Because it's so easy for all of us to slip into that. Let me, let me give you this and, and illustrate this and then we're done. I am thankful that there are building inspectors. We have a wonderful building inspector here in Easton. I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful that he comes in and assesses things in the building to make sure that this building is safe. I mean, that's kind of in our best interest to make sure the building uh, is safe. And so I'm glad they're building inspectors. Some of you have gone through home inspections. You're probably glad before you bought a house uh, that there was a home inspector that went through and checked to make sure that things are as they were represented to you in the sale. I, I think we're thankful for that. But I will tell you this, if there's a problem in the home, you don't ask the building inspector to fix it. I love the man that is here in Easton. Uh, his, uh, 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 Paul has, has visited here for eight years. I hope he never retires. He's over 80 years old. He works with his town part-time. He's the only building inspector I've ever met that will hug me after every inspection. It's like $50 free hug and a, an inspection. There you go. I mean, I mean what, a, what a deal. Where else do you get that but Easton? You know, uh, Unbelievable. But I would say this, as great as I love Paul, and as wonderful as he is, if there was a problem in the building, I would not call him and say, Paul, can you fix it for us? You know what I would do? I would look for a contractor. I happen to know about half a dozen. Why? Because the contractor has one job. That's to build. Now, is it important that we have times of discernment where we find things that are not right? It is. By the way, should we be doing that more in our own life than in other people's lives? Well, Jesus said that was the case because we need to make sure we get the beam out of our own eye before we get the mote out of someone else's eye, the speck in someone else's eye, which means this, whatever energy you put into someone else's life, you make sure that you put much more of that energy into your own spiritual life to make sure you are right with the Lord. It's not, by the way, well, the Bible says judge not. Well, you haven't only, you've only read a certain part of the Bible. Because the Bible does say to judge righteous judgment once again. But we do so with the right spirit. But I even know this about contractors. And again, I know almost nothing about contracting. But I know this. Before a contractor starts a job, he's going to look around and make sure everything is as it should be. If something is amiss, he doesn't just say, oh, well, I guess I'll just start anyway. No, he takes the fault. He calls the owner. And like every home renovation show you've ever seen in your life, they open it up and all of a sudden they found, oh, by the way, you know, it, it, this is going to be a $1,000 job, but we found about $80,000 worth of repairs once we opened it up. I don't know how they do that other than the magic of television. But the contractor is not just going to wallpaper over the problem. They're going to have to find the problem. But why do they find the problem? See, the building inspector finds the problem for one problem because he wants to nail you because that's his job. He's going to write you up because that's his job. 
The contractor has one reason to find the fault, because he knows he needs to fix it to be able to build things up right. You know what we need? Not to ignore the problems in any of these areas we've talked about tonight, but instead of finding problems as a building inspector, I'm going to write them up. <laughs> Wait till they see the fine. <laughs> they're going to they're really going to they're really going to regret crossing me. No, we're contractors. I find fault. But when I do, I do for one reason, with the heart that I want to help make it right. I want to come at this with the right spirit so that I can do what I can to make sure that this situation, which is not a, the way I believe it should be, that I'm coming at it from the right direction. You know what, that spirit, I found that it, probably 75% of the time, once I start having that right spirit, I find out that the problem isn't really a problem in the first place. It's my jealousy. It's my ego. It's my not understanding that this person is maybe acting like an unsaved person or a person that's not following Christ, and I all of a sudden have to put my dander down a little bit. And the other 25%, you know what it helps me to do? It helps me make sure I approach them right, with the right spirit, with the right heart, to make sure that I'm doing right. The Ephraimites had a problem, and it went from generation to generation to generation. Their feelings got hurt very easily, and they didn't see reality. They missed all the blessings. They would cut and run. They were great at talking. They weren't great at working, and in the end, it became a way of life. You know, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize I helped everybody find what was wrong in their life and never try to help anybody find what was right. Isn't that the job of a pastor? I want you all to go home and realize how wicked you are. Well, the job of a pastor is to tell you, well, yeah, you're wicked, but there's a remedy. His name's Jesus Christ. If I don't do the second part, then I'm negligent as a pastor. Am I not? By only giving you half the news that you're sinners? But that we're sinners in need of a savior to not just tear down, but to tear down to the express purpose to build up for Jesus Christ. Tonight, I don't, I don't know where you stand with this tonight other than I know you're human and that you have flesh and we're all weak. But the Holy Spirit has allowed us to not just be the critical building inspector, but to be, as Paul called it, of himself, a wise master builder. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He called himself a wise master builder. I don't have the kind of credibility to be able to call myself that tonight. But I do know this. If Paul, by the inspiration of God, who called out fault, who's bewitched you? You're foolish. Liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. But he was a wise master builder because he had the right heart. We can do the same. Where do you stand with your spirit tonight? Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.